All right, here we are. Here we are. Science in between. Welcome back. And this is episode 49. I know, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's a a perfect square there, my my friend. (laughs) (laughs) Just keeping you apprised. Apprised Uh, of the meaningful (laughs) numberology, numerology, nonsensicalology that uh, we uh, like to mention when we uh, mention what episode it is. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, there 49. you go. So there you go. That's that was, your that's your takeaway from this episode forty nine. <laughs> it's a perfect square. Write that down. Right there. There it is. We yeah. our, our work here is done, as they say. Yeah. All right. Okay. Going well, back to bed. See you. Okay. Good. Good man. <laughs> <sighs> well, what are we going to talk about today, Ollie? Well, that's a good question, um, Scott. You. Well, we 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 thought we would wrap up. Um, this PCK conversation and sort of in, in, and we kind of got lost in the weeds a little bit this last two episodes with PCK and, and uh, I think if in episode 47, you, you, uh, you know, with a square jar, right. And yeah. You're, yeah. And um, 48, we were, you know, they're kind of cleaning up things a little bit. Yeah. At, and then, mop I, out. and then I just went full bore, you know, went, went a little wild by, yeah. you know, throwing in the uh, eugenics uh, yeah. into you the know, conversation. Not like that's a, a controversial. No, 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 that's Ooh. like, <laughs> yeah. isn't that like one of those things where they say, you know, uh, what you can see a discussion forum devolve, like how many steps does it take for someone to call someone a Nazi or something? Yeah. And, yeah. and eugenics is in there. Is, yeah, uh, it yeah. is. And I, and I wasn't intending that, but I, I do think that it, you know, I think it's the misuse, right? It's the misuse sure. of, of this. And I think it really comes back from uh, whenever we develop some instrument or we develop some tool to measure things, then mm-hmm. that measurement becomes the thing, right? And then it becomes, it gets, gives it much more power and utility. Right. And, and some of that's unintended yep. from the people who create it. Like, I think, you know, and actually I've, I, I, I know this to, a, a, to a, an extent, I, uh, you know, I was at a conference where um, the uh, the TPAC people were there and they were trying to move away from TPAC. They were trying to like kind of saying, you know, our work is taking us in different directions. And when in reality, they they couldn't. Right. It was just it was like the mafia. Right. You can't get yeah. out of it. You know, every time they I try to pulling get out, you back, pulling you back, you know, and and I think that. um yeah, I think that's the, and, and so this was something I, I, you know, I listen to a ton of podcasts and I was listening to uh, This American Life recently, a couple episodes ago, and it was about, uh, it was called the psychopath test. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was, well, it was interesting. They've done a couple episodes like this. They, they mm-hmm. did an episode a few years ago about uh, narcissism, where everybody in the show took a narcissism test and see who, who was the most narcissistic. Um, well, they wanted to do the same thing with this, where like to see if who, who would score the highest on this psycho path test mm-hmm. um and so they interviewed the guy and they, they basically did the whole episode all three different parts of the episode focusing on um you know the creation of of the uh test for psychopathology not psychopathology psychopathy that's psychopathy it. yeah mm-hmm. um for uh psychopathy and mm-hmm. so yeah uh-huh uh-huh and so they interviewed this guy and he he uh and i think his name was Hare. Um, I, I'll, we'll, we'll look for that in the show notes. Uh, wait, but, like hair, like H E R R, like as in Mr. in German or, or H A I R as in, I, yeah. Okay. And Here's so, some... so he develops this, the, the concept and he develops an instrument to, to measure this. Um, and it's a series of questions and that it's basically scored zero, one or two in each of these 20 questions. Mm-hmm. And so, um, if, if you get a zero, you have no psychopathy. If you're one, you kind of have a little bit. And then two, you have more, right? I mean, really, this is go. the instrument as yeah. it was explained in, in this episode. And so um, this, he was just doing it for a, you know, he was a psychologist. He was a pro- professor mm-hmm. of psychology someplace where um, he and his you know doctoral student were developing this instrument. And they were just going to use it to, you know, study people and use that to you know expand the research community 
However, the criminal justice system got a hold of this thing. Mm -hmm. And then it became, yeah, it became the thing. It became the thing that decided people's fates. Because Mm -hmm. if somebody was deemed to be a psychopath based on this test, then it was being used for parole decisions. So like somebody who scored like, you know, I don't know, like I think the highest score was a 40 you can get on this test. And if someone scored in the thirties, they're like, well, this person's clearly not capable for, uh, to go back out and be a contributing member member of society. We're going to, which is never the way he intended this test to be used. Right. right? But once you create it and once you, you know, put it out there, it, new people find new meaning with it and new people find new way of using it. That may not be, you know, the way it's in, in, intent was. Yeah. yeah. I think that's, that's, that's sort of, you know, what your beef is with the stuff. I mean, like a, one of your beefs. Yeah. Like, well, I think, right. So, so the, one of my beefs is definitely that the idea of, um, you know, I, 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 sh- I need to look this quote up, but, um, the quote about uh, if if anything exists, it exists in some measurable quantity, right? This this notion that that you have to measure things for them to be real, um, and then and then not recognizing how um, fraught and contextual and culturally grounded all of these measures are that we develop for psychological and social constructs, right? And and how how that carries forward in in real can carry forward in in really dangerous and toxic ways and um and i think that's that's definitely you know the this goes back to our conversation about pck that like the idea that there is a certain kind of expertise that teachers have that is not just knowing their content and it's not just um you know knowing how to teach that it's sort of a c- combined uh, knowledge of how to teach particular things like that notion makes a lot of sense. The problem is then it got turned into, well, we've got to measure that thing if it's real. And if we're going to measure it, then we have to articulate it as a set of propositions that can be scored. Right. Which goes right back to your psychopathy thing, which is like, okay, well, we're going to score this. Like, you know, do you reflect on your own practice? you know, one through five. And if you rate yourself a three, then you're, you've got, you've got more of that pedagogical content knowledge than some other kind. Right. And, and I think, you know, right now, um, just to attach it to something else uh, that I think is relevant to us, because we think about technology is, you know, we're in an era now where a lot of this data and a lot of these instruments are being transformed into, um, into computer-based um algorithms, right? So this data is being put into machines to chug out answers for things um, and for things like decisions about whether people get parole or not or sentencing decisions in the criminal justice system. And there's a great book by Kathy O'Neill, who's a mathematician um, who wrote a book called Weapons of Math Destruction. And it is all about how AIs um, are increasing inequality and and she argues are threatening democracy. So I think this idea of, you know, oh, well, we're just going to develop this instrument and it's just, you know, the, the, the quotes around this are, it's just for this purpose, like what you're saying, this sort of narrow purpose. Well, the problem is as soon as it's developed, people use it for what they want to use it for. And then they start claiming because they have, they have your article that you've written. They say, oh, this is research-based. This measure means something. And they use it in a different context and they use it in a different way and they maybe administer it wrong or all sorts of things, um, not to mention the instrument themselves may be troubled by by their cultural bias and, and other, um, you know, like one of the one of the well-known problems with a lot of psychological instruments is that they were developed with um, students at universities as the main the main study subjects, right? And so, well, who are students at big research one universities? Well, they're yeah. they're not representative of the general population. So what impact has that had on the way that we think about some of these instruments? So, yeah, I think, I think you're right in that I, at the core of this, I think one of the things that concerns me is that the idea that a measurements are important and and are the only way something is quote unquote real and then what happens when we develop these instruments to measure things that are very culturally and contextually bound yeah i think so there there's a there's a lot there right um mm-hmm. so um one i wanted to just uh correct the the guy who developed the psychopath tests 
Um, his name was uh, Robert Hare, H-A-R-E, like the oh, rabbit. Like the rabbit. Yeah, like uh, the rabbit which funny. neither of us got. Which neither of us yeah. got. Yeah. And uh, he's, he's at the University of British Columbia, or was. Um, that's where he developed that work. Um, and the int- you, you brought up that, that the book, The Weapons of Math Destruct- Destruction. We read a book on campus. We had a, uh, a campus learning community uh, around algorithms of oppression. Have you heard of this, about this book? Uh, um, I, I have not. No. Well, it's it's along the same vein um, where it talks about how algorithms that are used for all sorts of things, right? There's algorithms in you know Amazon. There's algorithms on Twitter. There's algorithms everywhere, right? That are like controlling the types of content we see, the types of things that are sent to us, and and so on. But they were talking about how the uh, a lot of those algorithms have internal biases because of people who create them, and how they continue to develop and grow, and the and 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 the bias that's in, inherent in that. And so again, I think it comes back to you know. It, it, an algorithm is a form of measurement, right? It's a form of measurement and using lots of complex data, you know, to be able to, you know, make decisions. I think that's probably the, you know, or, or run some sort of thing, right? To, you know, right. but, and, but again, those algorithms are not without bias with not without, you know, and, and how those algorithms are used you know, again, it's like that the Frankenstein's monster, you know, mm-hmm. the, yep. you know, once, once they're out there, how people use them is not up to the person who created them. And, um, and it has all kinds of unintended consequences. And sometimes could... intended consequences. I mean, the right, reality right. is right. Sure. You're yeah, right. I mean, right. interestingly, that quote that I, so I, I wanted to get my quote right since we're since we're doing some fact checking here i appreciate that yeah so um so the quote is whatever exists at all exists in some amount to know it thoroughly involves knowing its quantity as well as its quality and interestingly and i'm glad i looked this up the guy who said this is edward thorndike who is the founder or father of educational psychology right so this is this is the guy who is is you know who's he and his his graduate students and and sort of intellectual progeny took over the colleges of education in in the um, in the the ni- 19th into the 20th century um, because they were quantitatively oriented right and this yeah. was a this what made it sciency um, so I think this is you know it's interesting that it that it was him I mean I think the other thing I want to mention about this sort of instrument building because this is related to um, to a, a paper I wrote with with Ron Gray and D- who's at Northern Arizona and Dave Stroop who's at Michigan State about um, pre-service teacher learning and um, and one of the things that happens when you develop an instrument is you set the standard for what what good means right and and then you you not only set the standard for that thing but you you say that it doesn't matter the context doesn't matter so that the the individual students or the individual in this case, pre-service teachers, if we're talking about pedagogical content knowledge, like the context that they are in and their backgrounds and their experiences do not matter, that there is some absolute scale that we can measure PCK on. And and what that does is it positions pre-service teachers or anybody who's being measured with this instrument in a deficit perspective, because you're basically saying like, these these people don't have this stuff, we're going to measure it. And 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 explain how much they don't have it. So pr- presumably, then we can design courses to um, to give it to them. But what it doesn't say is, well, what are the productive ideas that these folks have about teaching and science teaching, and how can we use those to to build up expertise, right? Rather than starting with the idea that they're missing all this stuff. And there's an exact analogy to the way that we think about science teaching, right? Which is that this is why we talk with kids about their ideas, because their ideas actually are valuable and useful and should be the focus of what happens in science classrooms. It shouldn't be the teacher just giving out these normative answers and explaining the, you know, the ideal gas law to kids so that they can write it in their notebook and memorize it, right? And that that idea that the standard is set by the researcher um, is is a piece that you know is also a little troubling. You know, and we're railing on PCK, but I mean, let's let's face it. This, there are other things like this, other concepts like this, in and not not just in teacher education, yeah. um, but throughout. You know, I mean, I think the one that comes to mind is like uh, 
self-efficacy, right? Sure. Like that or teacher efficacy. They're, you know, they're like instruments that, you know, that are used for that. Like, and they talk about, again, from a deficit perspective, like you either have, you know, efficacy or you don't, right? right. Or, or some gradations of that, right? And, you know, you, which you means it, efficacy doesn't change from context to context, which is completely bananas. Like right. the idea that you think you're, you always have the same level of efficacy all the time everywhere like that, you know? Yeah. Sorry. Well, I mean, cause you know, you could walk into one classroom and feel very confident. I mean, that's basically the, the what the measure is intended to do is to be, you know, what's your co- level of confidence for being, you know, being able to teach the thing that you're teaching. And I, I will say after, you know, this would be my 30th year of teaching and there are classes that I walk into that I feel like, gosh, you know, I, I, I have this, this is a class I've taught, you know, numerous times. I know this, the student population, but then, you know, I taught a, a, a new class last fall where I will say that for the, you know, for the first, probably like three or four weeks, I was just on my heels. Cause I was like, I don't know this content as well as I, I, I should, cause I haven't taught this before. I was using new books. I was using, you know, new projects because I wanted to teach with, you know, similarly to some of my colleagues in terms of the, and, and so I was on my heels a lot and, and, you know, that's after th- 29 years of teaching and yeah so i you know coming back to the you know it is the the context does matter and so these instruments are have uh limited utility right and and i i would say and i don't mean to put words in your mouth but i would say that it while i would say it has limited utility you you would even go further than that is that a pretty fair statement well i i yeah i mean i uh, you know again i want to be somewhat judicious here but but i do think like the, the potential for misuse here is pretty massive. And, yeah. you know, when you said there are measures for, for other things, I mean, there, there are measures for everything. Like if you yeah. name basically any psychological construct that you all have heard of, like somebody has developed a measure for it, right? right. So motivation. Mindset. Um, yeah. You know, oh, fixed mindset. mindset. Right. right. No, yeah. Or, or Lear- learning style. Or, or, yeah. Oh, learning styles. Yeah. Uh-huh. There's that. Well, yeah. I, you know, I think this would, this would be a good time. You throw in the thir- uh, Thorndike quote. I'm going to throw in, you know, this one, this quote that it is often attributed to Einstein, right? And I think he, you know, he says, not everything we count counts and not everything that counts can be counted. And so I think that really is, you know, it, it, it demonstrates what, what are uh, some of our you know, reservations with this stuff is, is that, you know, yeah. we count a lot of things that really doesn't they, they don't they don't matter they don't matter as right. as much as some of the things that are harder to count or are impossible to count right and right. i think that's a good transition to well if we're not going to do this scott if we're not going to measure this stuff then what do we do instead and right. i think that's that's where you know you're i think have done more more heavy thinking on this than i have yeah and and let me let me add one piece of nuance to that to this before we sort of move into that because i do think that's the next thing to talk about but um is you know i recognize or i think we both recognize that like the brain human brains operate in certain ways and there are sort of fundamental psychological principles that are that our brains operate on that are biological and cultural too um and and understanding those things are useful, but I think the thing that's important to understand is that once you move into the social realm where you're talking about multiple people communicating about ideas, um, individual psychology gets really complicated because everything becomes, for example, about communication. And, you know, there's the quote about, you know, the, the miracle of communication is that it occurs at all because, I say words and you interpret those words the way that you want to. Right. And so this idea that just because I said something, you know what I mean, that that in and of itself is sort of a crazy notion. And now you turn that into whole classes or whole societies or whole cultures trying to communicate about things. And it's it's just a mess. Right. And so the idea that you're going to somehow measure something in there that's going to accurately represent a stable thing is really hard to to imagine. So so the question is, as, as you've posed it, I think, so what do we do then? So wh- how do we do research on educational spaces if we're going to say, well, we're not going to use these measures, these decontextualized measures that, that are, you know, are purport to measure these, these, um, these named concepts. And I think the answer is, um, well, the, the, 
the simplest answer, and we could get into a much deeper, more philosophical answer, but the simplest answer is that that we need to watch the social practice and listen to the talk and then do our best to understand that in the context in which it is happening, which is to say, like basically largely doing qualitative research, but but that that's not exclusive. But I think the idea that you need to, if you want to know if people are good teachers, I mean, this sounds sort of obvious. You go and watch them teach, and then you see what's happening while they're teaching. And if you want to hear how they talk to kids, you listen to how they talk to kids. And then you use that information to try and understand that social practice, recognizing that it's happening in a context and that the way that Ollie teaches physics and our, my analysis of Ollie's teaching of physics is not 100% going to map onto Scott's teaching of physics, even though Ollie and Scott may be very similar in many ways and their classrooms may be very similar. So really, it, it, it's, it's getting away from this idea that it's, that it's simple to create generalizable knowledge about, um, about educational context because they are complex, right? So, so those to really understand what's going on, I think you need to see what's happening. So... Um, so that's, I think, the alternative to these measures is to say, well, we recognize that these things happen in context, so we need to see them happening in context. So the, so the challenge with that is, as, as I see it, and, and is that if we, we're studying it, you know, because we're, we're not just interested in studying, you know, education. We're, we're trying to um, develop the best classroom environments for students, the best teaching practices for, for, Mm -hmm. for, for teachers. And, and studying it is a way of, of understanding what good practice is. Um, But then how do we improve practice? Like, Mm -hmm. cause I, the traditions of like, you know, qualitative research, like ethnography, right. Those are things where they study it. Right. But they're trying to take that, you know, sort of like hands-off approach and not really, you know, impact it. They're really just studying it. Mm-hmm. And so instead, what, what we want to do is to do something where we're not just looking at it from an ethnographic sociological perspective, but also making impacts on that. So there's a change, right? right. And in, in some sort of way, right? And not from a saying that there's a deficit thing that people need to, but I mean, you and I both recognize that there's there's some changes in science teaching that needs to happen, right? Yeah. I mean, there then and and how do we make that happen, right? Because right, and I think I think the my my answer to that would be that what we're looking for are principles or practices that can guide that that practice, right? So articulating practices that we think are productive and, and then looking at them across a large um, and diverse sample as, as best as possible. So, you know, if we talk about ambitious science teaching, um, which we've talked about before, right? Like that's a set of practices. It's an articulated set of practices and it, it, it doesn't um, there, there are observation instruments that people have developed to go in and and sort of decide whether somebody is ambitious or not in their practice. Um, And I think those have the potential to, to skew into the, into the sort of measurement realm as well. So it's a tricky line to walk, but that said, I think practices and principles with the understanding that those practices and principles need to be contextualized um, now that I recognize that that causes problems, right? It's like th- this is this gets to issues of things like fidelity, right? Which mm-hmm. is which is a classic way of saying right. we've developed this curriculum, for example, and we're going to give it to teachers, and then we're going to measure: do they do it right? Essentially, right. are they? Are, are, is there a high degree of fidelity between the way the teacher did it and the way we designed it? And again, that's a really interesting way to frame it, right? Um, as opposed to saying. Like, how do you tell the difference between Ali has taken this curriculum that you've given him and he is being responsive and and an exceptionally uh, thoughtful and contextualized teacher who understands his kids and is changing the curriculum to to best support their learning and somebody who's just screwing up a really good thing. Right. Right. So I think, but, but when you say fidelity, again, it positions like, who's the, who's the person who has the right answer there? Well, it's the researcher, right? Because they developed this curriculum or the curriculum developer or whoever, right? 
this curriculum is good the way it is. And if a teacher changes it, in other words, doesn't do a high fidelity implementation, then they're messing it up. That's right. Then the teacher is bad and the curriculum is good. And it's not, you know, the, the, whatever happens in that classroom is the teacher's fault, not the curriculum's fault. So, um, so I think it's, it's, yeah, it, it is an interesting, um, it is an interesting conundrum there, but, but I would say, you know, that that's what I seek when I am doing my research is I seek principles. I seek practices. I seek to characterize those practices in ways that other people can take them up and try them, but not characterizing them to the point where I say, Oh, this practice works everywhere. So do this and it will always work with no matter who your kids are or where, what your what your social context is or what your cultural background is. If you, if you take this exact practice and, and do it exactly as I have described it, what that, what, what that even means is hard to imagine. Right. right? But, but then, then you will be doing good science teaching. So, um, you know, and I'm, and I'm not trying to say either that it's, you know, the, the old saw from the, from the Supreme court about pornography. You know, I know it when I see it, that's how I can tell the difference between something that's pornography and something that's art. Um, you know, I'm not saying that it's, I know it when I see it because I think we are trying to characterize it in some meaningful way, but what we're not trying to do is turn it into a list of Likert scale items where people can rank things from one to five outside of that context as a way of determining whether they're, they're doing that thing or not doing that thing. I, I I just thought for a second we've covered a lot of territory in this episode. Boy, howdy. <laughs> Eugenics, pornography, psychopathy. It, we're yeah. like uh, we got you know it all right here. Yeah, this is Friday great. Friday morning, baby. This yeah. is what happens. Uh, yeah, just, <laughs> whew, getting ready for the weekend. You're talking about See, your you, weekend yeah. stuff, right? Eugenics, it's, pornography. Yeah, it's all it's all mm-hmm. on the you know the schedule for the weekend. Good Measuring time. stuff. Measuring stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So. You know, I I think we, I think that as as humans, we, I I guess the numbers give us the the instruments give us some sort of comfort in messy spaces. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so when we we deal much better with things that we think are uh, objective rather than subjective, right? And, you know, especially in education. And so these really, it's really hard for us to, you know, subjectively measure or grade a a paper, right? And so what we try to do is we go, okay, I'm going to create a rubric because a rubric is going to help. And, you know, and I am sure every teacher out there who's ever created a rubric realizes that there's no perfect rubric. There's because every one of them Get, you know, there are times when you're trying to apply that rubric where you're just going, I don't know what the heck to do with this, this right. paper, this project, this thing, which is really awesome, but is not really fairly measurable with the rubric that you have. And right. or the other one where you have this really, you know, crappy project, but scores really well. Yeah. And because uh with the objective measures you've created, you know, and they're not really that objective because you're still, no. you're still judging. You're still, right? you're still making a choice. Right. But that you are, as you're, you know, applying this instrument that you're looking and saying, you know what, numerically, this is a, an A project, but it just is not right. Yeah. And, and so, but I think we, we, we find comfort in that, you know, as humans, and I think our students find comfort in rubrics and, and checklists and, you know, all of those things, but, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a sticky widget, you know? Yeah. Well, and, and I think a rubric is a really interesting and nice comparison, right. Or, or, or maybe metaphor thinking object, right. To say like, okay, yeah, this is a challenge, like grading open-ended things in schools. So giving them a value, assessing them, right? Um, Because that's what we do in schools. We have to assess things. We have to score them um, so that we can compare kids on who did a better job on them, right? And we're not, we can talk about that another day, the problematic nature of of grades and and all that piece. But so we've got this thing. So, so sort of like this, this is sort of like PCK, like, okay, we got this thing. We got this interesting thing that we're trying to understand. We got this kid's paper. So we're going to develop a rubric. So we're going to say, well, 
what are the qualities that we're looking for in a paper that'll be good? And then we start naming those qualities. And then we rank based on naming those qualities from good to, to bad, basically, right? So we're like, well, spelling and punctuation. So that one's pretty straightforward, we can say. But, yeah. uh, you know, organization and, um, and, and strength of argument, right? Okay, so that, okay, that got a lot messier quick. But then we're going to name those things. But then we say, well, you know, I really want this to be a fair rubric that I can apply to everyone. So I'm going to better define what I mean by um, strong right. argument. and right. So I'm going to name a bunch of sub criteria for that. And pretty soon, you, you know, you have this 50 page rubric. And what, what it turns out happens after you've done that is you still can't, right. you can't get the subjectivity out of it. Like no matter how hard you try, no matter how elaborate a rubric you build, you still have to make decisions about these kids' work. And that's an exact analogy over to PCK, right? Which right. is that we've got this interesting idea. Well, how are we going to measure it? Well, we're going to create some categories and we're going to create some items. And then, well, it turns out those items and those categories don't really capture what we're trying to get at. So what do we do? Well, we create more detailed aspects of each of those measures, which gets to this increasingly complex model of PCK. And what does it end up measuring? Well, it doesn't really measure anything any better because you can't get the subjectivity out of something that is fundamentally subjective. And that's what we're talking about here, right? Is, is, an, is, a, is an attempt to scientify these ideas so that they are measured in some meaningful, decontextualized, abstracted way that doesn't require human subjectivity. And the problem is you can't do that because all these things are subjective. Right. So what do you do? Like, uh, you know, my, my solution is you admit that that's the problem. And then you say, look, it's subjective. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do my best to describe the principles or practices that I, that I mean to, to be talking about. And then you can interpret those locally the way you want to. And then we can have a conversation, quote unquote, conversation through the literature, through research about how those things happen differently without me saying like, you're doing the wrong thing. I'm doing the right thing. And, you know, I don't know when I say it like that, it also makes it sound like, like there is no standard, right? Like everybody, all, all science teaching is good. It's just a conversation. Every paper is an A paper. Right. Because, because it's it's a paper. Because it's a paper and yeah. you can't, if it's, if you can't, if it's so subjective that you can't measure it, then everything is awesome. Right. right? Yeah. And I think, I think we all know that's not true too, right. but, but I think, you know, that, but the idea that you can, by creating a measure that has numbers in it, that you've somehow made it less subjective. I think this is the thing that bothers me, right? That, that at the core of it, that I really struggle with and you and I are math people, right? Like we, We are very mathematically minded. We think about things mathematically very often, but that thing really bugs me. The idea that, okay, I'm going to make up these statements that people are going to agree with or disagree with. And then based on that, I'm going to say I've actually measured something in the same way that like using a tape measure to, to measure a desk is measuring something. And I, it like that, that, level of misunderstanding of the subjectivity that's built into all these, the willful misunderstanding from my point of view. Um, I think that's what troubles me. Yeah, I, I share that. I, I share it, but I also, I will be frank. I've also played the game at times where yeah. I've, you know, um, and I wouldn't call it playing the game, but I, I think what, what, if it's like, I think a better way of describing it would be, I recognize that, some other people are speaking this, uh, this language. And if I want to be part of that community, I have to speak that language too. And, and so I have done self-efficacy work. I've done TPAC work. I've done that, um, you know, some work that I've been doing recently with a, you know, colleague of mine is around teacher education, technology competencies, Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm, Which is mm-hmm. there are 12 items that, you know, mm-hmm. teacher educators should have in order to be able to model and teach teachers about technology and how to, you know, I- integrate technology in the classroom. Yeah. And so there, of course, you know, somebody listed these, these competencies and what's the next thing that happens after the competencies listed, somebody develops an instrument on a, how to measure that. And, yeah. and so, um, you know, that is a conversation that's happening in you know, the teacher education field around technology integration. And if I want to, you know, have a voice in there that I have to be able to speak some of that language. Right. Um, and, but I think, and uh, Go ahead. 
No, and 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 I recognize that it's I don't want to say disingenuous or dishonest. I think what it is is just, you know, you know, having I don't want, or even calling it like being a chameleon or anything like that. Um, I think what it is is just recognizing that there are different conversations and that are happening. And while I don't necessarily buy into all of it, I also know that I want to be in the room where the conversations are happening. Mm, Hamilton. Very nice. And, Um, and, and this is the way to get in, right. It's a way to get in, to have those conversations and, and you know, and maybe have an impact on the field, you know? Yeah. So, so, um, well, first of all, this is a safe space, so it's okay to say you (laughs) you measure things in this space and we'll be okay. We could, we could still be friends. Thank you. Yeah. Um, but I think, I think actually you've just captured, um, one of the things that makes these instruments so powerful and, and for me dangerous, um, is that once they've established themselves, then to be able to talk about those ideas in, in a, in a scholarly space, you often have to capitulate to these, Mm -hmm. to these measures. And if you don't, then you're excluded from the conversation. And this is like, if we want to talk about equity and systematized uh, um, oppression and and exclusion, like this is an example of that, right? Like all these things, things like impact factor of journals. Mm-hmm. So, right. okay, well, I, for me to be successful, I have to get my work into high impact factor journals. Uh, well, okay. So to do that, what do you have to do? Well, well, you have to potentially, as you're describing, compromise on your principles and do research that uh, that you wouldn't have otherwise done because you feel like that's the only way to get it into these journals. Same thing with funding of re- research. Right. Oh, are, you, yeah. are you willing to you know, modify the, the methods that you're using to study a particular thing? Because the because the funding agency says, well, you need to measure this thing in a quantity. Like you can't. What instruments are you using? Are you using valid and reliable measures of these things? Otherwise, we can't fund this because the work is not research based. So I think, yeah, it's um, it's really interesting how these things are pernicious, right? That systems are established to to give privilege to people who have power, right? And and those people have have the ability then to, um, to, to implicitly or explicitly be gatekeepers. And, and therefore, if you do research of a different kind, it can't get published here. Right. And if you do whatever it is, like, it's not just about research, obviously this is about the the way culture works, but I think it was interesting that you brought that up and, and how you talked about it from your own personal experience. And I think that's, that's a reality is that, that these environments, um, have structures to them and those structures have power and the the power tends to try to maintain itself right. um and and as a result that that can can move people to make decisions about their own work that may at least initially not align with their principles but then maybe eventually they end up yeah this defending <laughs> it saying yeah this is a thing i do and i i have to defend it now because i've been been doing it forever because that's the other thing that we're not good at in our culture is is letting people learn, right? You know, this is a this is a this is a classic Twitter thing. It's like, well, okay, so you said something twenty years ago that was was right. crappy, and now I'm going to hoist you on your petard for that. And it's like, well, I learned, like I was a dummy at that point, yeah. and or not a dummy, I was naive, whatever you want to say. And I, my right. my worldview, my understanding of how things work has changed, so I should be allowed to learn, right? That's okay. It's okay to learn. Um, in fact arguably that's what we're hoping for is that people continue to learn. So, so this idea that like, Oh, well, once you've said something, then that's who you are for the rest of your life. Like, Oh boy. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's the whole point of education, right? Is we're hoping people learn and change and develop over time. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, just from my point of view, like it's a, it's a classic statement that lots of researchers make that they say, um, Oh, that paper that I wrote like in 2012, like, boy, there, I, w- I would have done a lot differently if I was doing it today, or I, I read that and it feels so naive or whatever, right? Like the, you know, work that you've produced in the past, 
was part of how you've learned and it's part of your learning yeah. trajectory, whether that's writing your blog or whether that's publishing papers or whether that's just having conversations with people, like you're learning through all that process and, and you should be able to express that as changes in the way that you understand things without being pilloried for being a flip-flopper or a person who, you know, has no integrity or principles. Yeah. And I don't, I wouldn't say like, uh, why I, I don't, at the end of the day, I don't like lie awake at night thinking that I've, you know, sacrificed principles. Yeah. Um, I, I think that, you know, the, it's a learning journey for me. And I, and while I've tried on some different, you know, jackets along the way to see, you know, um, you know, I've dipped my toes in, you know, a bunch of different, you know, research areas. I, I think I, I, I find more comfort with the qualitative messiness the the subjective stuff the socio-cultural stuff it's just you know again it's really hard to get stuff done right yeah <laughs> yeah and yeah well there aren't easy answers right i right. mean I, and and we culturally we do like easy answers like we like it not just in education we like it everywhere we like yeah. you know oh all your problems will be cured if you just drink celery juice Right. That you yeah. do that every day. You drink however many ounces of, of pure, unadulterated, organic <laughs> celery juice. And, you know, like, and this is, I, I mean, I'm joking about this, but this is a thing. Like, there's a, there's a celery juice thing that, like, if you drink eight ounces of celery juice every morning, half an hour before your breakfast or whatever, that this cures everything, like, probably COVID, certainly any sort of long I thought it was, I thought it was uh, vinegar. I thought it was like apple vinegar. Well, that's a different one. That's apple like, cider vinegar. Yeah. And that. maybe some cayenne and lemon juice in there or something. Yeah. Like, everybody's got like the magic potion that you drink every day and that cure, you know, it detoxifies your body. Like, all this sort of nonsense. Um, anyway, now we're now we're really spinning out of we have uh, meandered oof, today. This episode woo. is is a quite the meander. Let's pull the plug on this one before we get too deep in the in the weird yeah. weeds. Because then who knows? I'll bro- drop eugenics again. <laughs> please don't do that. No, please. You just did, but please don't. Oh no! Please don't yeah. make it. No. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I guess that's the 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 place to end is you know it's <clears throat> there's is the ending. It's the ending. Well, no, it's, I would say, you know, life is messy and it's hard to measure it. Right. And, yeah. and just because we can measure it doesn't make it any less messy. Nope. And measuring it doesn't make what you've measured true. Right. right. You've just measured something, right? Like, okay. Like I've, I've developed this instrument. I've measured something, but if, if that something is meaningful and, and is the thing it purports to be, if even if that thing exists in the way that you're describing it, like those are very big questions. Right. And, uh, and yeah, I think we can put a pin in that, but I think there's some interesting, um, you know, thinking about that, that we could also bring in like some there, you know, this is, you know, this is not just Ollie and Scott thinking about these issues. Lots of people have thought about this stuff, about the, the, the difficulty of doing social science research and, and the complexity of measuring complex you know, inter interpersonal um, group um, social context and what's happening there. Like, you know, obviously there's whole disciplines that focus on this. So, so this is not just the two of us figuring this yeah. out on this podcast. This is, this is a big thing. So uh, Joyce, Joyce, Joyce of the week. Yeah. I'm, I'm ready to go. If you, if you, uh, well, you, you go then I, okay. I have one, but I'll, I'll, I'll wait. I'll listen to you. you okay. Scott. I'll, I'll wait to you. hear your joy. Thank you, Ali. I appreciate that. Well, I, so I got to say like, this is sort of a callback to, and I look to see what, when I mentioned this, but it was, it was episode nine. So this is way, way back. Wow. This is almost a year ago, but uh, season two of Ted Lasso um, and you know that that's I think basically all I need to say. But uh, but uh, for those for those of you who don't know me well, uh, though all, all the listeners do now, know me they do. Well. Yeah, yeah, they're they're friends of mine. But uh, for those of you who maybe this is your first episode, like uh, Ted Lasso was the exact right show for me at the exact right time. So last summer was um, you know was pretty crappy in a lot of ways. But um, but Ted Lasso was uh, really made gave me a lot of joy and continued to bring me joy as I rewatched episodes of that show um, over the past year. And it's on Apple TV Plus. Um, 
the basic premise is there's a guy who's a division two football coach in the U S and he gets hired by a woman who's running a, a premier league football team in, in England, which is like the, the biggest division, the most, most uh, prestigious division of, of English soccer. And they hire him to come over and coach this team. And, um, and it's, you know, it's just a beautifully balanced show. It's so it's heartfelt without being corny. It's just, you know, it's just a fantastic show. So the second season uh, dropped July uh, 23rd. So, um, so I encourage you, if you have <laughs> not seen it, go back and watch the first episode or first season and then begin season two. Uh, but, you know, Jason Sudeikis plays the titular Ted Lasso and, you know, that the all the characters like Rebecca and and um Nate and Coach Beard and like all it's just a fabulous cast. It's a it's a beautifully written show and you know I, I can wax poetic about this show a lot. So I'm gonna stop now but but it'll bring well, you joy. I will say that like you know when it came out it kind of flew under the radar but the second season as it's coming out there's been a lot of articles about like first off he you know uh Jason Sudeikis was nominated for an Emmy for the for his performance but more than that they were talking about the cultural impact of the show during the pandemic and they were saying specifically because it's so heartfelt and genuine and also nice like the characters are nice people that you know especially ted lasso who's you know could could have played that that and and i've never seen the show but i'm just repeating what you know the times um, we're saying about it. This was a big article in the New York Times. Yeah. Was saying that uh, they that 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 the character could have easily be played as like a dumb American or right. as you know snarky, and instead he comes off as being like authentic and nice. Yeah. And, and and it could also be played very cornbally, right? Where he's right. he's like seen as to to be sort of an idiot who doesn't really who's just like this corny aw shucks. Um, dude. And he, he walks that razor's edge beautifully, um, to be, you know, intelligent and thoughtful, but also, you know, kind and caring. So, so, uh, I have a, I have another show. Um, excellent. Yeah. Uh, this is a, a limited series that dropped about, I guess like maybe a week ago on Hulu called McCartney three, two, one. So, uh, it's about Paul McCartney. Um, it's an oh, interview, yeah. Rick uh, Rubin and Paul McCartney, and it's all in black and white. And it's the two of them are, I guess it's six episodes, half an hour each. Um, so I guess they just hung out for, you know, three or four hours or longer and just went through old songs. And Paul would, uh, you know, talk about like the writings of the s- songs and what they were doing in the room and what they were trying out. And the really cool thing is, so Rick Rubin's a producer. He was the uh, the producer uh, for a lot of the Beastie Boys, the early Beastie Boys stuff. But he's also produced so many people, yeah. the Red Hot Chili Peppers, the, you know, I mean, you just like yeah. there's a whole list of older um, older, you know, ba- bands and 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 performers and newer ones, too. Right. But so he's just like a like a music dude who just listens and just, mm-hmm. you know, and so what he does is they he got the master tracks for all of these old songs, Beatles songs and McCartney songs and wing songs and would just as they're standing over a board and they're just, you know, he's playing with dials and and listening and isolating different parts and then talking about like, OK, when you wrote this, you did this and, you know, and then also playing other like tracks that didn't make it onto the albums. Mm. Right. And it's like, okay, you guys originally recorded it this way. Why didn't you keep it this way? And they're like, Mm -hmm. Oh, uh," and it's just so cool to hear these iconic songs that are part of, you know, you know, just music history. Mm. Right. And then hearing them in different ways and hearing the backstories of them. And, and, you know, I thought going into it, I'm a big Beatles fan, so I'll put that out there. uh, And I've been a, big Beatles fan forever. So since I was like maybe 12 or 13. Um, and so I went in thinking, okay, this is, this is going to be like Paul McCartney feeds his ego. Mm-hmm. And it's nothing like that at all. It is Paul McCartney uh, really just being human and talking about like the mistakes he makes while he's writing and the things he's like, 
He's, but he's also like brilliant. Like, you know, he's brilliant. Yeah. I mean, he's freaking Paul McCartney. Right. Yeah. Um, but Sir, Sir Paul. Sir Paul McCartney. Right. Yeah. And, but he's also like somebody who just, you know, um, he's self-deprecating. He's like funny. He recognizes that sometimes he, there's magic that just happens that he's like, I have no idea how I wrote the song. Really. Mm-hmm. I have no idea. I woke up, it was in my head and I wrote it down. He's like, mm-hmm. and then there's other songs that I have to write and work at, but this isn't one of them. Mm-hmm. And he goes, and this is like why I believe in magic. And he's like, and it's just so cool to hear him, you know, just talk about the music. So McCartney three, two, one, awesome stuff. Yeah, you know, that's cool. Yeah. We, we binged it in like, like two days, you know? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, I I don't know if this is cheating, but you could you could add a uh, a bonus joy slash recommendation. So Rick Rubin does a thing with Malcolm Gladwell on his on his. Uh, have you recommended this? The broken I, record. I I think I have. Okay. If so, I have it, I'm a I'm an avid listener over that. Yeah. yeah. So that so that's great too. And Rick Rubin is uh, yeah, he's a fascinating dude. And uh, and I haven't seen the McCartney three two one though. I've seen the the uh, yeah. the little trailer for it. So yeah, I'll I'll add it to my list. But yeah, you I should don't. you need to watch Ted Lasso. That's home yeah. for you, brother. I'm telling. I'll, you. I'll I'll check it out. I I don't have the Apple um the Apple Plus Apple Apple TV Plus. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I don't have it's a terribly named sis, uh, service. But well, I, you know, I think there's still a seven day free trial, so you could. Yeah, no, no so I actually have, somebody gave it to me on on uh, a DVD. I said top secret thing oh, uh, no, i oh. can't say who <laughs> so put that it fell off a truck is what you're saying <laughs> i can't just, say where it came it from but I, still, your I, have yard. It, I have it on dvd uh-huh. and i can't uh-huh. say how i have it but uh-huh. I, I, i'll tell you after the show okay i'll tell you because uh, okay. it's pretty cool how i got it but okay yeah uh-huh yeah there it is all right completely uh, legal we, we will edit that out <laughs> <laughs> not part of the show will not be part of the show Dude, what's in the show is in the show. Sorry. Damn it. I forgot that rule. Yeah, uh, first rule of uh, podcasting. It's yes. In the show, it, yeah. in the show. Well, here we are. Episode 49. You know, thanks. Thanks for being here. Yeah. yeah. In between. If we'll you've you made it, time. if you've made it to here, thanks for sticking around. Yeah. And if you haven't made it to here, <laughs> well, you, you won't even know that you didn't you make it to here. So yeah, you missed yeah. all that joy. Yeah. <sighs> that was a yeah. lot of joy. Yeah. A little bit I, of strangeness, a little bit of eugenics, and a lot of joy. <laughs> Some pornography. <laughs> Just a tiny bit. Ooh, All right. On that note, we yeah. will see you next time. See you next time. In between. See you then. Bye now.